Back in 1862, way back in the early Placer period, there was a fellow came into the mining camp of Bannock, Montana, a fellow who was described by a contemporary this way. He was a little red-headed man with a pack on his back. He wore a red shirt, an old army coat with one of the tails burned off by too close a proximity to the fire. And I love this next phrase. A little man with a thin neck and eyes like a bird. This was, of course, William Andrews Clark. And you should know that he was, number one, carrying in the pack on his back three books. Poems by Robert Burns, which represents studied recreation. This man studies everything he does. Hitchcock's Elements of Geology, perfectly obvious where he's headed and Parsons on contracts. Again, perfectly obvious what this man is up to. William Andrews Clark, as our friend K. Ross Toole just told us, first arrived in Montana in 1862 to pursue his fortune in the gold rush. His claim in the boomtown and territorial capital of Bannock didn't provide the unfathomable riches that he desired But it did pay out enough to give Clark the capital he needed to switch industries and move into the merchant business. He made his first real fortune driving pack trains of mules carrying tobacco into Montana from Salt Lake City and selling it to miners. After a few years of doing that, Clark transitioned to banking over in Deer Lodge and he made an even bigger fortune, repossessing mine properties after their owners defaulted on their loans. Over the next 20 years, he built up a mining empire in Montana and Arizona, acquiring a myriad of small copper mines and smelters. By the mid-1880s, Clark owned half of Butte, competing with the formidable financial wherewithal of the Anaconda Company on equal footing. But Clark always had bigger ambitions than mining, namely politics. And as his fortune and influence grew, he turned the full force of his wealth and power towards furthering his political ambitions. In 1884, he served as the president of a failed constitutional convention that attempted to secure statehood for the territory, and in 1888, he set his sights on Washington, accepting the nomination of the Democratic Party to run for the seat of territorial delegate to Congress. Montana had been a Democratic stronghold since the Civil War, and Clark assumed that his fellow Democratic oligarchs in the territory would support him. The other big players in the party were all men we've introduced on the show before, 
and all incorporators of the Montana Improvement Company. Missoula's Andrew B. Hammond, Territorial Governor Samuel T. Hauser, and Anaconda Company founder Marcus Daly. By 1888, Clark and Hammond and Daly and all of whom I have introduced to you, were known as the Big Four in the Democratic Party in Montana Territory. And ever since the 1860s, Montana had been a Democrat. The only virile political force in Montana was the Democratic Party. This was a mixture, the, the colonel and the core of it was a mixture between the Irish and Southerners. But the thing to remember is that it is a democratic territory. Clark, who was only offered the nomination after Toole and his predecessor Martin McGinnis both refused it, was one of the state's wealthiest men and ruler of half of Butte. So he was expected to win easily. Throughout the campaign season, Clark barely bothered to hit the trail or put much effort in at all. Hammond, Hauser, and Daly were all Democrats and were expected to turn out their respective fiefdoms of Missoula, Helena, and Butte for Clark. On election day, November 6th, Clark even held an extravagant banquet to celebrate his presumed victory. But along came November and the general election, and when the returns were in, he had been defeated. He had, as a matter of fact, been defeated by 5,126 votes, which is a big defeat. Clark had not just lost, but he had lost in a landslide, 57 to 43 percent, and losing 14 of the 16 counties in the territory. He was appalled, as were a lot of people. <clears throat> he studied the returns, and he saw that Butte and Anaconda, wherever Marcus Daly employed large numbers of men, and wherever the Northern Pacific Railroad employed large numbers of men in western Montana, all of these regions had gone heavily Republican. Nobody had ever heard of the man who was elected. His name was Thomas H. Carter from Missoula. Everywhere, in other words, William Andrews Clark saw the hand of Marcus Daly in his defeat. After a day or two, he wrote a letter to a friend of his, again, this little fellow keeps popping up, Martin McGinnis. <coughs> and he said, there was a combination against me which could not be defeated. On Saturday, the foreman of the night shift in the Anaconda Mine ordered his men to vote for Carter. The day shift on Sunday also received the same orders, and five bosses were stationed at the polling places to see that the orders were carried out. The employees of the Missoula Mercantile Company received similar orders, and their employees saw to it, that, and their employers saw to it that they obeyed. The employees of the Northern Pacific Railroad Company in the territory numbered about 2,000. They were under instructions to vote for Carter. The conspiracy was a gigantic one, well-planned and well-carried out, but the day of retribution will come when treason may be considered odious. For the time being, I retire politically. All right, now, 
Here in November 1888 starts the Clark-Daly feud, which is the first battle in what has come to be called the War of the Copper Kings. So what happened? What caused this violent rupture? Well, I will now tell you. I'm John Hooks. And I'm Matt Newman. And this is Land Grab. Welcome back to Land Grab. Matt here. John. This is the third episode of our first season where we're taking a look at the rise of the Missoula Mercantile Company and the allotment of the Flathead Indian Reservation at the turn of the century in western Montana. In chapter one, we focused mainly on the pre-colonial history of western Montana to get an understanding of how the Salish, Ponderé, and Kootenai lived for tens of thousands of years. And we looked at the circumstances that led the tribes to sign the Hellgate Treaty in 1855. The treaty created the Flathead, or Jocko, reservation in the southern half of the Flathead Valley, just northwest of Missoula, where the Ponderé and Kootenai resided, and the provisional Lolo Reservation in the Bitterroot Valley, south of Missoula, where the Salish resided. In Chapter 2, we saw how changes to federal policy and a huge influx of new settlers led President Ulysses S. Grant to order the Bitterroot Salish out of the valley, before future president James Garfield forged an agreement with the Salish chief Charlot that claimed the Salish were willing to remove to the Jocko reservation. Garfield's forgery paved the way for decades of tension between the Salish and white Bitterroot settlers. Charlot maintained that the agreement was invalid, and he remained in the valley with his people. Because of the Bitterroot Salish refusal to accept the validity of the agreement, the federal government rescinded official recognition of the tribe. This meant that they were cut off from rations and other aid provisions in the Hellgate Treaty. Last chapter, we also met Andrew B. Hammond, and charted his rise from a teenage lumberjack in New Brunswick 
to a store clerk in Missoula to one of Montana Territory's industrial kingpins with the formation of the Montana Improvement Company. So far, we've really just covered the creation of the Improvement Company, where the Northern Pacific Railroad and the Anaconda Copper Company joined with Andrew Hammond and his partners to create a new timber monopoly in the territory in order to provide the massive amount of lumber required to build the Transcontinental Railroad and the giant Anaconda smelter. The Improvement Company's plan was really simple in the abstract. They were going to control the whole timber market, set the price, and make a tidy profit, selling off excess timber while providing for each of the partners' own needs, essentially at cost. But it was a very complicated plan to actually carry out in reality, especially because Hammond's organization, which was supposed to be the lumber provider in the whole thing, didn't actually have a lumber operation to speak of when they signed the railroad contract in 1881. So they had to construct a whole timber empire, essentially from scratch, as quickly as possible in order to meet the demands of the contracts. And this is where Andrew Hammond really stepped up and took charge. Hammond was the doer. Hammond was the man that built the sawmills over in northern Idaho and eastern Washington, and one down in Salmon, Idaho country. In this chapter, we're going to take a look at the actual operations of the Montana Improvement Company, as their construction of a huge timber empire dominates political and economic life in Montana for a decade. And we're going to see how that dominance comes to a head with the fateful election of 1888 and the gigantic conspiracy against William Andrews Clark. 1888, which is a key year. It's, it's, you know, I, I've, I've told you not to memorize dates for the sake of memorizing. This is a date you better remember. Chapter 3. Depredations. Okay, so we're picking things up here in 1881 and 1882. The founders of the Montana Improvement Company, which is again Andrew Hammond, uh, with his partners Bonner and Eddie as the timber providers, and the Northern Pacific Railroad and the Anaconda Copper Company as providers of capital and consumers of that timber. Hammond is the boss of the whole thing, and his job is to figure out how the company can get the huge amount of timber that the clients need at the cheapest possible price. This means that they can't afford to bother with things like competition from other enterprises or purchasing the lands that they would cut wood from. And as it turns out, Hammond, going all the way back to his teenage lumberjack days in New Brunswick, has the perfect background for this work. 
the the interesting thing about New Brunswick and Hammond was there was an, a huge conflict there over timber. And it was this people in the, the main New Brunswick area, sort of the, it was very much a frontier, the border between two countries. And the US and Canada almost went to war over the timber. And it was people on either side of the, the river, on either side of the border, basically poaching timber from each other. And this whole timber poaching culture that grew up in that area, and it became, I think that's one of the things that Hammond just sort of absorbed or imbibed was this that this idea that that timber is for the taking. That's Greg Gordon. We heard Greg in the last chapter. Greg is an environmental historian, and he wrote the book on Andrew Hammond. Uh, I mentioned his book last chapter, but I got the title just slightly wrong. Greg's book is called When Money Grew on Trees, A.B. Hammond and the Age of the Timber Baron. And we've got a little link to buy it in the episode notes if you're interested. Greg gets into so much more detail about Hammond's life than we have time for, and it's all super interesting. And he also does a great job tying Hammond's journey in with the broader tides of American capitalism in the era. But this culture of you know, your, your podcast called Land Grab, right? And, and sort of, that's one of the things that the threads I was tracing, and it seems that going even back to the colonial era, um, New Brunswick is sort of the heart of that, that sort of timber poaching culture. Um, and, you know, that's where they're cutting the timber for the ships. And that's where um, the white pines are prevalent. And, pe- and it's, again, it's sort of off the beaten track. People are going in there and either cutting the king's timber on the Canadian side or the American timber on the main side and floating it down the river. And um, and it's it's it becomes this sort of free-for-all right it's it's just there for the taking and i think that that sort of generate you know after generations of generations of imbibing that idea and that culture it's sort of when hammond comes west it's like well yeah this is the same thing i'm just going to take whatever whatever's out here it doesn't really you know it's it's yes yeah, so what it's government timber but you know i'm going to make money off of it and it's more about who can access the timber and turn it into a valuable product than it is about who owns it. Hammond's family had been poaching timber owned by the U.S. government for generations. And once he was in Montana, he reappropriated the practice to remarkable effect. This is the land of the giants, the country of the big trees, and men of a size to match. This is the home of the treetop daredevils, who work and play among the kings of the forest. Here in the Northwest is the land of high adventure amid the tall timber. But before we can fully dive into Hammond's plan, we have to briefly explain the laws regarding commercial timber operations in America 
at this time. There were three laws, federal laws, on the books. There are complex laws, and I'm not really going to trouble you much with them, but you should know what they are. One is the Timber and Stone Act of 1878. The other is the Free Timber Act of 1878, same year. And the third was the Railroad Land Grant Act of 1864. Your, your podcast is Land Grab, right? And that the biggest land grab of all is the Northern Pacific Land Grant. The 1864 Railroad Land Grant gave the Northern Pacific Railroad square mile chunks of land in alternating sections on either side of the railway. The other alternate sections were kept by the federal government. In Montana, the award amounted to a staggering 16% of the state. Much of that grant land in Montana encompassed prime timberlands filled with rich stands of old-growth ponderosa pine. But the law also specified that the the railroad could not cut this timber until a survey had been made by the federal government to determine what sections were alternate and what were not alternate. As usual, the government was very slow, and by 1888 or 1883, the survey had still not been made. As for the Timber and Stone Acts, the only thing you really need to know about those was that they made it legal to cut and sell timber for profit on government land that was classified as mineral lands. But the enforcement of the acts and the interpretation of what constituted mineral lands fell entirely to the whims of whoever was in charge of the Interior Department. As part of its contract with the railroad, the improvement company could cut timber from the railroad-owned land-grant sections for free but it was barred from cutting for-profit timber on the government sections, as that was intended to be public land. Furthermore, the Montana portion of the land grant hadn't been surveyed yet, so there was no way to determine what was railroad land and what was government land. The Improvement Company had the full might of the Northern Pacific and the Anaconda Company behind them, And the Secretary of Interior at the time was a man named Henry Teller. Teller was a mine owner and a banker who had been a senator from Colorado before being made secretary. And he was an easy mark for the corporation's lobbying effort as he was extremely in favor of any kind of industrial development in the West. Hammond went out and visited Teller in Washington, and the two concocted the plan. The improvement company wanted to control the whole Montana timber market, but they could only legally cut timber on railroad lands, and those hadn't been surveyed yet. Or they could cut from federal lands that the Secretary of Interior had declared as mineral lands. Secretary Teller went ahead and made it real easy for him, and just declared the whole territory of Montana to be mineral lands. The Improvement Company now had free access to any timberlands they wanted in Montana, and a personal assurance from the Secretary of the Interior that they could cut it all down with impunity. 
While Hammond and the improvement company set about building five new sawmills and chopping down as much timber as was possible in Missoula County, which was the whole western part of the state, Assistant Attorney General Joseph K. McCammon was on the Flathead Reservation negotiating a right-of-way passage for the railroad. At the negotiations, the chiefs aired 25 years of grievances. These included that the bounds of the reservation were much smaller than Stevens had initially promised. Remember, the tribes had been led to believe the reservation would extend all the way to the Canadian border, instead of just extending through half of Flathead Lake. The chiefs also expressed indignation that promised payments and services had never arrived, and that, yet again, the government was back demanding more lands. Reluctantly, the tribes agreed to the deal, when McCammon expressly intimated that he would look into restoring the north side of Flathead Lake to their reservation, and offered payment to the tribes, who begrudgingly accepted. Agreeing to the railroad right-of-way also allowed the improvement company to move into the reservation to cut timber until the railroad reached Portland, Oregon. And before long, they had multiple sawmills worked by 2,000 men running on the reservation. In 1883, the railroad through Missoula was finally complete. To mark the occasion, Ulysses S. Grant finally came to Montana, 12 years after ordering the Salish out for the Bitterroot in order to drive the gold spike that completed the railroad at Gold Creek. That same year, the last seasonal buffalo hunt in Montana took place. The arrival of the railroad and the destruction of the buffalo signified two more devastating blows to the traditional indigenous way of life. Nearby, at Anaconda, is one of the world's largest non-ferrous metal reduction plants. And incidentally, this stack is said to be the tallest smokestack ever constructed. In 1884, the year after the railroad was complete, Marcus Daly finished building his smelter at Anaconda and signed another deal with the improvement company to provide all the timber for the Anaconda smelter. And on September 3rd, 1884, the first fires were started in the furnaces of the largest smelter in the world. Daily alone, for the Anaconda Company, is using 300,000 cords of wood. This is the year 1884. <clears throat> He's using about 40,000 board feet of lumber or timber in the mines uh, in that one year. He has a contract with the Montana Improvement Company to supply that wood at $5 a cord. So that's a contract for $1,500,000 worth of lumber. With the railroad deal and the smelter contract, the Improvement Company was doing a truly bonkers amount of business. The Anaconda Company, in the midst of all of this, was in a heated price war with the Michigan and Boston-based copper interests. Let me review very briefly for you the Montana-Michigan price war. You did see that the Montana-Michigan price war occurred between 1883 and 1886. Essentially trying to lower the price as much as possible to drive the other interests out of business and take basically total control of the world copper market. The price 
had been driven down drastically by this war. From 18 cents to 10 cents, a colossal drop in price. As a consequence of that drop in price, production of copper had fallen off drastically. Because the mines closed, with the exception of Anaconda and Lake Superior, the mines all over the United States and the world had simply shut down so that you have a shortage of copper. The Anaconda Company was only able to win this price war because of the sweetheart deal they were getting with the Improvement Company allowed them to get wood cheap enough. The demand now for copper has burgeoned tremendously. Why? Well, it's 1886, the end of the Montana-Michigan price war. By this time, you have a tremendous demand due to the burgeoning electricity electrical industry. Cities all over the world are putting up electric streetlights or arc lights. All kinds of uses of electricity are now beginning to boom. So you have a low price, a shortage of copper, and a tremendous demand for copper. So now the Anaconda Company is in control of almost the entire world copper supply, right as the electric light industry is about to take off and copper is about to become basically the most valuable material in the world. How much money the men behind the Montana Improvement Company made off the railroad and the copper bonanza is unknown and unknowable at this point but it would be hundreds of millions, if not billions, of today's dollars. The initial deal was for the Eddie Hammond Co. to provide everything but the steel for the railroad from Mullen Pass to Thompson Falls. 200 miles of some of the most difficult track to lay on the whole transcontinental route. They had to cut lumber and build 10 bridges across the Clark Fork, including the Merritt Gulch Trestle which was the tallest bridge in the world at the time and took 160 men six months to build. Shortly after that, they signed a new 20-year contract to supply the railroad all the way from Miles City to the Dalles. The capital was funneled through the First National Bank of Missoula, which Hammond owned. The improvement company cut the timber and contracted construction crews and the Eddie Hammond Co. supplied the workers, setting up branch stores along the rail camps to sell non-essentials like tobacco and alcohol. Many of these railroad camp store communities went on to become established towns like Frenchtown and Thompson Falls along the route. And improvement company directors would buy up all the land and subdivide an area before anyone else knew there was to be a depot and later a town there. Getting in while the values were at their lowest and controlling these communities right down to their layout and incorporation. All while the money flowed from one partner in the cabal to another. From 1881 to 1883, the Eddie Hammond Company alone increased yearly profits from $100,000 to $450,000 a year. And the amount that the individual incorporators of the improvement company made is unfathomable. 
after the right of way on the reservation was granted, Secretary Taylor gave the improvement company permission to move in and cut down lumber for construction, all under the protection of the Timber and Stone Act. And immediately, thousands of lumberjacks were cutting down tens of millions of board feet of timber on the reservation. At the same time, Secretary Teller was selectively enforcing the same act on tribal members, preventing them from selling timber on their own reservation. The improvement company was left to make a fortune, while the tribes were left with a $16,000 payment from the government held in trust and unable to be spent, and $5,456 from the Northern Pacific Railroad which amounted to $3.51 for each tribal member. So to some people, the railroad was definitely progress in Montana, but it was an extremely one-sided idea of progress. In 1883, Charlo was visited by Senator G.G. Vest from Missouri and Montana Territorial Delegate Martin McGinnis as part of an official report for the Senate on the conditions of Montana's indigenous people. But Vest and McGinnis had other priorities to their visit, namely to determine what could be done to coerce the Salish to remove from the Bitterroot. Charlo had lambasted the representatives with grievances, but his main gripe was that he wanted the Hellgate Treaty honored and his people left to their lands. But the politicians weren't going to do that, so they focused on his other big complaint, which was that no aid promised in the Hellgate Treaty and Garfield Agreement had ever been delivered to the Salish, and the tribe was sliding further and further into poverty. Based on that report, Secretary Teller invited Charlo and Indian agent Peter Ronan to Washington, in what was essentially an attempt to bribe Charlo personally to accept a removal. Charlo refused the $500 yearly stipend and an offer of a house and a wagon, and insisted all he requested was to live unbothered in the valley. Remember that the Bitterroot Salish were not being recognized as an official tribe after refusing to acknowledge the Garfield Agreement as valid, so Ronan hadn't really interacted with them yet during his time as agent. Ronan later wrote that Teller pulled him aside in Washington and told him to get close to the Salish and see what could be done to convince them to move. And shortly after they returned from Washington, the first aid promised in the Hellgate Treaty and Garfield Agreement was delivered in the form of rations and payments held in trust. In 1885, a new presidential administration, headed by Grover Cleveland, was inaugurated. Cleveland was a conservationist, or perhaps today we'd call him an environmentalist. His administration, his cabinet officers, reflected that view of his. And Cleveland replaced Henry Teller as Interior Secretary with a man named Lucius Quintanus Cincinnatus Lamar, a real Southern aristocrat. Lamar, in turn, appointed a new land commissioner, a man named William Andrew Jackson Sparks. Lots of great names going on in the Interior Department at the time. A land commissioner today is an office that we don't have, really. 
but it was a very important office in those days. When Sparks took over, he began to go quite naturally through his predecessor's records concerning the public domain in the United States. And what he found therein shocked him deeply, very deeply. And he is on a mission. He is on a campaign. And I think of him as like really the first progressive reformer in his 1880s. And he goes after lumber poaching. He goes after timber poachers all around the country. Lamar and Sparks were determined to rein in the wanton theft of public lands and resources that had characterized the period that was known as the Great Barbecue. Lamar immediately changed the enforcement of the Timber and Stone Act that had allowed the improvement company to cut public timber with impunity, and Sparks began investigating their timber poaching, what the government called depredations. While Secretary Teller was in office, the Montana Improvement Company had a blank check to cut timber anywhere in Montana, and their operation had grown to its massive size under those non-existent restrictions. So, even though there was a new administration in town, and the interpretation of the laws now made their activities illegal, the improvement company was too reliant and making too much money off of the old interpretations to stop now. Sparks is going through the records of his predecessor, and there he finds widespread, massive evidence of massive timber depredations, the cutting down, the illegal cutting down of timber on the public domain, in Montana in particular. <clears throat> in October 1885, he reported as follows to the Secretary of the Interior, Lucius Q.C. Lamar. Depredations on the public domain are universal, flagrant, and limitless. For instance, the Montana Improvement Company, a corporation stocked for $2 million, in which the Northern Pacific Railroad is reputed to be the principal owner, was formed in 1883 for the purpose of monopolizing timber traffic, traffic in Montana and Idaho, and under contract with the railroad company, running for 20 years, has exploited the timber from unsurveyed public lands for great distances along the line of said road, shipping the product of joint trespass and controlling the general market. In this heroic landscape was created a new kind of American hero, the lumberjack, giants among men who cut the forest down to size. Not only had the improvement company cut indiscriminately on public lands, but they had also maintained logging operations and sawmills on the reservation long after the railroad was completed, in direct violation of the terms of the right-of-way agreement. Machinery and mass production have made most industries tame, but the only mass production in felling a tree is the mass of muscle behind the two-bladed axe or the two-man saw. Part of that uh, first report on Sparks' timber investigation included a statement from someone living on the reservation who said, 
they have from two to three thousand men here, steadily chopping the government timber and sawing it up into lumber and shingles for their own benefit, and pocketing the proceeds themselves. And if anybody else wants any defense with, or to use on their place, or for firewood, they make a terrible fuss about it, and threaten to put them in state's prison. If I can read right, I don't think the law allows them to destroy public timber as these men are doing, and they charge an outrageous price for their timber too. These woods wits can drop a big trunk of given line as neatly as laying a pencil in a pencil box. A good thing too, for there's no time for dodging when the woods ring with the old cry, Timber! In the report made by the investigating agent talking about the sawmills on the reservation, the agent said, The stipulation was that as soon as the road was completed to Portland, they should leave. The road has long been completed, but the firm insists on keeping their mills on the reservation. They are running night and day. They are cutting out all of the available timber. The investigation also found that the improvement company was illegally enforcing a timber monopoly on the state, forcibly blocking other citizens from acquiring timber on public lands they were entitled to. Even after learning that they were under investigation, the company wantonly continued and even expanded their depredations. They intimidated witnesses and burned logging camps after leaving them to destroy evidence. The agent who filed the first report on the depredations claimed that he had a great deal of difficulty obtaining satisfactory information. He reported that it was practically impossible to locate witnesses and individuals who had worked on the railroad construction. He also said that the improvement company officials anticipated his investigation and had deployed agents along the line to suppress and destroy evidence of the company's operations. The investigating agent was actually intercepted by Hammond himself when he was in Montana, and in what seems like a plain, old-fashioned shakedown, Hammond told the agent that they had been assured the operations were legal by Secretary Teller, and then Hammond, uh, let's just say, strongly urged the agent to discontinue his investigation. But the agent, to his credit, was undeterred and said, I believe no faith can be placed in statements made by officials of the Montana Improvement Company. The Improvement Company's extortion and intimidation even extended to their business partner, Samuel T. Hauser, who at this point was the territorial governor of Montana, a man named Thomas F. Oakes, who was a vice president of the Northern Pacific Railroad and one of the incorporators of the improvement company, wrote to Hauser at one point expressing indignation at uh, his apparent lack of vociferous support for the improvement company. So he received the following letter from Oakes. And I quote, read this and let me know if you intend to take this position in reference to our timber interests. 
If we have no rights in this property, which you will respect, I shall at once withdraw our deposits from your bank, and in every other respect make things so hot for you, you will think the devil is after you. The Northern Pacific Company has not spent $70 million to be bulldozed by you or anybody else in Montana. Let me know exactly what your position is. And Hauser responded to Oaks's letter, immediately backing down, saying, quote, I am willing to be bulldozed by men in a position of power and stand it like a little man. I might add that Mr. Hauser thereafter was extremely vocal about the timber suits. Secretary of Lamar, of Interior Lamar, looking into the matter, not only approved of Sparks' position, but noted that the railroad was also giving the Montana Improvement Company a rebate, which was against the law. So these people are violating laws all over the place. And Lamar gave Sparks the green light to institute lawsuits, both civil, but above all, criminal on the incorporators of the Montana Improvement Company. And the Improvement Company is so egregious. They are off, I mean, everybody's doing it. You know, Clark and Daly and Hauser, it doesn't, you know, everybody's poaching timber, but most of them are like, they get caught and they just pay the fine, which is basically, they think of it as just a fee doing business. It's like a dollar um, a tree, right? And like, ah, oh, whatever, here's a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the improvement company is just over the top. They're so egregious in their, their timber poaching and um, they refuse to back down. They refuse to admit any guilt. And that's when, you know, it just, the, the federal government and the improvement companies come head to head and they get indicted. Unrepentant and needing to meet the obligations of his massive contracts, Hammond and the improvement company continued and even expanded their legal operations. Hammond lumberjacks arrived armed to logging sites and intimidated and even assaulted federal agents and investigators who got in their way. Yeah, there's a a quote in the report about uh, Hammond lumberjacks in Idaho, quote unquote, terrorizing a U.S. marshal who attempted to shut the lumber camp down. But they knew they were in trouble. So, in order to protect assets, shield liability, and continue with the illegal harvesting, the improvement company dissolved into different shell corporations. Um, Hammond Bonner and his his pals um, dismantled the improvement company. They basically say, okay, we'll just, we'll just split it off and and that way, you know, it was the improvement company did it, so nobody else is liable. Again, this is, you know, before a limited liability corporation exists. Um, and now, of course, we have laws to protect people from um, lot being liable for their, their own actions. <laughs> <laughs> we see that today all the time. You know, a corporation will, will buy up a bunch of, uh, you know, smaller companies and then spin them off um and uh you know they're still you know still trying to court trace that corporate liability you know it's a great example of superfund right in the on the clark fork trying to trace all the corporate liability all the way back you know who did who who was the ones liable for all that pollution because you know companies were 
always spinning off and trying to divest themselves of of any sort of liability that might be associated with that with that company. This is how the Missoula Mercantile Company came to be. Born as a shell company designed to protect its founder from liability for illegal timber poaching. The improvement company had held the mercantile lumber and real estate ventures of Hammond, Bonner, and Eddy all under one umbrella. But now they were broken up into individual parts. The Merc now handled the wholesale and retail operation out of the old Eddie Hammond Company building. The lumber business became the Big Blackfoot Milling Company, and the real estate business became the South Missoula Land Company. I would uh, kindly suggest that you remember those names. The new Blackfoot Mill and the new company town of Bonner were built on 90,000 acres of timberlands that Hammond had acquired through a large, organized land fraud. Hammond's organization would pay people to file homestead and mine claims on the lands they wanted, and then those filers would immediately sell the land to the mill for like 200 bucks or something. The filer would get to keep the 200 as their fee, and the mill would have clear title to the timberland. This increased capacity allowed them to actually expand their timber poaching while they were under indictment for timber poaching, which is a pretty brazen move. Meanwhile, throughout the 1880s, the Bitterroot Salish faced an ever more impossible position. More and more settlers, farmers, and ranchers flooded into the valley, and the improvement company set its sights on the area too, buying up real estate and planning railroad branch lines through the valley as early as 1881. In 1887, Hammond joined with his usual partner Bonner, as well as Frank Warden, Higgins' old partner, and incorporated the Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad. A branch line they planned to build through the Bitterroot Valley to Missoula and then flip to the Northern Pacific. This was a, a pretty common practice at the time. The Northern Pacific was not by law, allowed to build its own branch lines off the transcontinental line, but they sure could make like a under-the-table sweetheart deal with someone like Hammond to build the line and then sell it. Samuel T. Hauser actually made a whole bunch of money um, promoting like bunk railroad branch lines to the NPRR that he then sold uh, to the railroad that then just flopped and were complete like cash dregs on the railroad and had a, a significant part in running that railroad into the ground. Hammond and the rest of the improvement company also were big fans of this practice uh, that they definitely did in the Bitterroot where they would uh, buy up all the land in an area that they knew a railroad was about to go through before anyone else knew that a railroad was going to go through it. So uh, they got in there at the rock bottom prices and then were able to sell it once it became clear that a community was going to pop up there. On top of all of that, in 1887, Congress passed the General Land Allotment Act. We touched on that last episode, and we are definitely going to get into a lot more detail later in the season. But for now, just remember that the act resolved to essentially destroy all the nation's Indian reservations sticking each individual tribal member with 80 to 160 acres of land and declaring the rest surplus and open to white settlement. 
the Allotment Act still required specific legislation for each reservation, but it set the template by which the process would be carried out. The 1880s also saw the establishment of the first religious boarding schools on the Jocko Reservation, which would become an important part of the allotment and assimilation process later in the show. The struggles of both the Bitterroot Salish and the Montana Improvement Company would come to a head in 1888, as the Improvement Company moves to build a political machine and the Salish begin to get really squeezed by the firm hand of industry moving into the valley. We're going to take a quick break here and then pick back up where we started the whole episode off with the territorial delegate election of 1888 and the gigantic conspiracy against William Andrews Clark. But before we do that, I want to play a little anecdotal story from K. Ross Toole talking about the whole ethics of the Improvement Company's depredations. K. Ross actually has an interesting familial connection to all this. Both of his grandfathers, as far as I'm aware, worked within uh, what would become the timber operation of the Anaconda Copper Company. His paternal grandfather on the tool side was actually one of Marcus Daly's right-hand men. Now, this is not an easy thing to handle when it comes to ethics and moral problems. Because here is a Congress determined, and rightly so, to protect the public domain, the property of the people of all of the United States, and passing laws to conserve this great natural resource, timber. And here are a bunch of men out in the West whacking down vast stretches of that timber. By 1884, Hammond alone had seven sawmills working up and down the Clark Fork, up the Blackfoot, up and down the Bitterroot, cutting down trees as fast as they possibly could. I am going to leave the moral and ethical problems to you. I'm not going to settle it. I can only say in all honesty that had I been here, I would have been whacking down the trees. Land grab is supported by ParentingMontana.org. Here in Montana, we want the same things for our kids. We want them to be confident, respectful, and make healthy choices. To grow these skills, I've been using tools and a process I learned from ParentingMontana.org. The website has information for me about my children at every age for dealing with chores, stress, and routines. ParentingMontana.org provides me with a way to build the skills they need to be successful. ParentingMontana.org, tools for your child's success. Brought to you by DPHHS and funded in part by SAMHSA. Landgrab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference, and the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. 
You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out The Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. Hey there, Land Grab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Land Grab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just Matt and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media, we're at LandGrabPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Land Grab, Matt. And John here. Where we're picking up in 1888, Hammond is working to build a political influence in Washington to get the indictments over the improvement company's timber depredations dismissed, while also laying the track for his Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad. Construction of Hammond's railroad project coincided with the start of the final legislative effort to force Charlotte's Band of Salish to leave their homelands in the Bitterroot. In January 1888, Montana's territorial delegate to Congress, Joseph K. Toole, no relation to K. Ross, received an anonymous petition from white settlers in the Bitterroot Valley. The petition implored him to introduce legislation that would begin the removal of the remaining Bitterroot Salish to the Jago Reservation by allowing tribal members to sell their lands. The 1872 Garfield Agreement had issued what was called patents for Salish-owned lands in the Bitterroot and made them, quote-unquote, permanently inalienable. The anonymous authors of the petition essentially followed the same company line that was in the Senator Vest report and Indian agent Peter Onan's dispatches back to Secretary Teller. And it assured Delegate Toole that many of the remaining Salish would gladly remove to the northern reservation so long as they could sell their lands first. This uh, continued within the long process of those reports we talked about earlier, essentially creating a rhetorical and a paper trail 
saying like, oh, well, the the Salish want to leave. They're ready to leave. They just, you know, the federal bureaucracy won't let them sell their land patents. You know, it was kind of this fabrication of like the guise under which they could engineer the removal. Toole, for his part, was really keen to cater to the wants of Western Montana voters. He was planning on leaving his largely ceremonial position in Congress at the end of his term, and he would run for governor in the first statewide election the next year. Working for the removal of the Salish was good politics in the region because it was both uh, desired by the white citizenry and the political and economic powerhouses of Western Montana. The settlers wanted more land to cultivate, and the state's burgeoning industrialists all had holdings and developments that would increase in value with the indigenous population gone. Toole duly introduced the bill that would allow for the sale of Salish farm patents in February. The big race in the state election that year was to fill the seat that Toole was vacating in Congress. The territorial delegate seat that Toole was leaving was the same one that William Andrews Clark was nominated to fill, again only after Toole turned it down. If you remember where we started, Clark assumed that he had an assured victory in Democratic Montana, counting on his fellow oligarchs in the improvement company to provide the votes from their employees. But the improvement company founders all turned on Clark and betrayed him in the election, supporting the Republican candidate, an unknown Missoula lawyer named Thomas Carter. Much was made in the territory's press at the time of this gigantic scandal, and many believed that the reason for the conspiracy boiled down to a simple personal dislike between Clark and Marcus Daly. The dislike may have stemmed from historical and political tensions between Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics, but really developed over the two's competition for total domination of Butte. However, it wasn't personal dislike that drove the betrayal. It was business. The big race in the national election that year was for president, and Republican Benjamin Harrison was running to replace the incumbent Democrat Grover Cleveland. The pro-Carter conspirators were all incorporators of the Montana Improvement Company and had been fighting the Cleveland administration over the timber depredations for his entire term. In the year 1888, Benjamin Harrison was running for the presidency of the United States. Benjamin Harrison was a Republican. Benjamin Harrison was a Republican. Benjamin Harrison was a Republican. It looks like it's going to be a landslide. As a matter of fact, it didn't turn out to be one, but it looks like it's going to be one. Clark, William Andrews Clark is a Democrat. William Andrews Clark is a Democrat. William Andrews Clark is a Democrat. What good will he do in Washington when the Secretary of the Interior, the Land Commissioner, the President of the United States, and everybody else is a Republican. If you want to do something about these terribly dangerous lawsuits, if you want to get them quashed, 
stop. You're going to send a Democrat to a Republican court? The answer is no. Shortly after Clark's nomination, T.C. Power, a rich Helena merchant and one of the leaders of the Republican Party in Montana, approached Daly in a secret meeting and proposed they work together to elect a Republican over Clark. Daly went to work getting his improvement company partners on board, but the pitch was a fairly easy one. Clark was an independently wealthy Democrat and couldn't be controlled by the improvement company. Backing a Republican that they owned outright would give them much more leverage, especially because it looked like Harrison was going to win and a Republican delegate in the Democratic stronghold would have an outsized influence on the administration. It also didn't hurt that Harrison's son was involved in a newspaper and agriculture business in Helena and could easily be controlled by the improvement company. It was national in scope. It was because the administration was clearly going to be Republican. The conspirators all agreed and set about enacting their plan. Secrecy was key to success, as Clark could turn his considerable economic and political clout against them if they became aware of the plot. Uh, There's a letter to T.C. Power from one of the many improvement companies, sort of like, I don't know what you want to call them, lieutenants or whatever, sort of the middlemen, the like mid-level kind of management of, of their whole scheme. This guy named Gust Moser. And I will just say, remember that name, because it, it will come up again, Gust Moser. Uh, but Gus wrote at one point to T.C. Power and said, In this county, at least, silence is golden, as we do not want Mr. Clark's barrel turned loose against us. Hammond, Daly, Hauser, and the Northern Pacific all publicly backed Clark after his nomination. But shortly after, Hammond, who was out of the state, dispatched his main lieutenant and nephew, C.H. McLeod, again, remember that name, to the Republican convention. Remember that uh, there were no open primaries at this point, so nominees were chosen by the political power brokers at the convention, and McLeod and T.C. Power whipped the Republicans into shape and got their man nominated. Thomas Carter had obvious qualifications for the position, as he was pretty deep in debt with the Missoula Mercantile, and he had Irish immigrants for parents. Nothing much else was required in this race. While the plotters continued to publicly support Clark, Hammond was in St. Paul, meeting with the Northern Pacific officials and getting them on board to provide the railroad vote. And old Herb McLeod was traveling up and down to different company logging sites and lumber yards and mills all over western Montana, freely handing out whiskey and cigars and telling their workers in no uncertain terms that their jobs depended on voting for Carter. Marcus Daly even sent a thousand workers to a pro-Clark rally on November 5th before his mine and smelter bosses spent the next day ensuring every vote that came out of Anaconda operations had Carter's name on it. And so, the Northern Pacific Railroad, Daly, Hammond, Hauser, all pooled their resources, which is to say their labor people, and instructed them to vote for Carter, and they did so. And so, Clark was left brooding in his mansion on Granite Street. E.L. Bonner, one of the incorporators of the Montana Improvement Company, and himself under indictment, wrote of this period, of this event, some years later, as follows. Well, we figured 
that if Carter was elected, that's the young unknown Republican from Missoula, while he was only a delegate, nevertheless, he could be of assistance to us. While if Harrison was elected and Clark went from Montana, we could not only not expect any favors, but the probabilities were that we would have an enemy. That is the reason for the start of the Clark Daily Feud. That is the reason that all the Democrats deserted Clark. The plot costed the conspirators a lot monetarily, in election expenses and losses incurred from Clark's wrath. But it also stained the reputations of the ringleaders, and especially Carter himself, who was never again free of accusations of ownership and gained the nickname Corkscrew Tom. And he was as crooked as a corkscrew. But those losses paled in comparison to the risks of the timber suits, and within a month of being sworn in, Carter had gotten them dismissed. He bragged about his accomplishment to the Butte Intermountain, praising Harrison's new Secretary of the Interior as a strong, intelligent, big-hearted, brawny Western man, and said, under his administration of the Interior Department, our people will certainly be exempted from the many petty annoyances with which they have been afflicted. Carter would go on to serve as Harrison's head of the General Land Office, a position in which he could even further aid Hammond, and even ran Harrison's failed re-election campaign in 1892 before serving two terms in the Senate. In 1900, the old Helena Independent even editorialized that since 1888, Carter had ever been of service to those who have been despoiling the public domain of the timber, and he has ever been their most devoted servant. Take his record all the way through, and it will be found that in him, the timber thieves have always found a buffer between the government and themselves. On the timber question, he was elected delegate. On the timber issue, he was made commissioner of the Federal Land Office. And on the timber issue, he was elected U.S. Senator in 1893. The long-simmering feud between Daly and Clark blew up after the election and dominated state politics for decades in what we now call the War of the Copper Kings. So the feud was on. It lasts from 1888 to 1900. It is important because it colors everything that happens for 12 long years, actually much longer than that, in Montana. One newspaper, the rather good newspaper I've mentioned before, the Butte Intermountain in Butte, had this to say in 18, after the election. There is the evil, Messrs. Daly, Hauser, Clark, and Broadwater are not leaders in their party. They are autocrats of the strongest type. The theory of the millionaire employer that he can command the suffrage as well as the services of the employed is bad. But that is what happens. The election of 1888 is important because it marks the first real alliance between the dollar and the vote. And that alliance is to grow stronger and stronger and stronger, as you will see. And in the end, it has very tragic consequences for Montana. And while all this noisy, distracting politicking was going on, Hammond and his business partners had been quietly buying up land in the Bitterroot Valley and laying track for their Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad. The measure to allow the sale of Bitterroot patents that Joseph Toole had introduced 
had stalled in Congress after February 1888. But once the Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad was completed in 1888, Hammond, his partners, and the citizens of the valley turned their attention to finally removing the last obstacle to their total domination of the Bitterroot. The election of 1888 is a pivotal moment in Montana history because it forced the territory's biggest capitalists into state politics in a way that would corrupt the entire system for decades. Because although they had moved to build their political influence in order to get those timber suits dismissed, once they had acquired that influence, they certainly weren't going to stop there. And as we'll see next week, Hammond's ascension to political dominance in western Montana will have profound effects on the shape the statehood process takes, as well as providing for the impetus and the influence in Washington to finally engineer the removal of Charlotte's Salish bands in the Bitterroot Valley. They were in cahoots, as you probably know, all the way through, Marcus and Hammond. Uh, you have the information relative to the fight for the capital, where Daly wanted Anaconda, and Hammond had bought the newspaper and owned the Missoulian at the time, and he pushed hard for Helena. Marcus got mad, and he resigned as president of the First National Bank, which was owned by this octopus. Right. But in the meantime, under the table, I take it that Hammond had made some deals with the people in Helena that if they got it, why, then we'd get the university here. Well, when we finally, our people were sent out of the Bitterroot, uh, old lady Combs, Marianne Combs, she died in 1977. She was a relative of mine. But she used to say, when they had to leave the Bitterroot, everybody was crying. This was in 1891 when the last bunch of Charlotte's people had to leave. She said, everybody was crying, even the men. She said, when we crossed the river to, to leave our, our homes. Did he talk at all about when they were moved out of here, you know, in the early 90s? Well, um, Dad remembered, because he was born in 87, of standing out the, beside their house and watching them go. Mm -hmm. It's so sad. Thanks so much for listening to the third chapter of Land Grab Season 1. Land Grab is written and produced by me, John Hooks, along with Matt Newman and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show. So if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more LandGrab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.